It's the second week in our series called I Wonder If It's Good For Me. And I started last week by saying, and I'll probably repeat this through the series, that uh, behind the clear part of the series, uh, trying to discern what's good for us in various situations, there's something else. And it's my desire to deconstruct some deficient ideas that churches unmeaningly through the centuries have given about God. A lot of people think because of what churches have taught, that honestly the only thing that matters with God, this divine being, the creator of the universe, is that we sort of find certain rituals that please him and appease him, and as long as we do those things, that's really all he's interested in. It might mean attending, it might mean lighting some candles, it might mean reciting some prayers, it might mean going through a ritual, and that's pretty much it. If you do the thing that he wants you to do, he's appeased, And then you can pretty much go your own way and do what you want. Others think that, no, he's all about beliefs. If you just believe the right things, it doesn't really matter too much how else you live. He's appeased by that. You just need to believe the right things. And so behind the clear part of this series uh, that we're trying to discern what really is good for us in God's sight, there's this, this idea that I want to get clear to you that God is this intelligent, understandable, loving being, comprehensively loving being, and because he is intelligent and understandable and loving, he really is committed and cares about what is good for us, what is the highest good for us. And so all these other ideas about God, these appeasement systems are just deficient. So I just want to challenge you right now, if you're sitting here this morning, And what you're calling a relationship with God is just about you believe the certain things and you think that that's all he requires and that's it, then that's a deficient idea of God and you have a deficient relationship with him. So he cares and is committed by his very nature to my highest good and your highest good. Okay, that's the basis of this series, that he's going to help us understand how to live. That's his desire for us to have a relationship with him in which we will know his will, do his will, because that's the best thing that can possibly occur in our lives. All right, last week when we started on this this theme of wondering if something is good for us, we started with a couple truths, and let me just start by sharing those with you. (laughs) Not everything that initially seems good to me is ultimately, will you say it with me? Good for me. And we've all probably had our experiments and our experiences in that. We, we tried some things. We experimented with some things. They were initially fun. They were initially pleasurable. They initially made us happy. They were good to us, but we ultimately found they were not ultimately good for us. Second thing we learned last week is when I live knowingly or unknowingly in accord with my design, it is good for me. We use the physical example. You know, we, ha- we have to breathe air. We have to drink water. We have to sleep. We have to eat. We have to move. When I knowingly or unknowingly live according to my design, it's good for me. When I knowingly or unknowingly live in contrast to my design, it's not good for me. And we saw last week that Genesis 127, it says that, that we are made by the creator in his own image. My design, your design is, is the image of God. That means that mentally, emotionally, spiritually, relationally, financially, every realm you want to consider, my design, your design is to be like Christ, our creator. So let's follow this too. Therefore, 
if I handle my relationships the way Christ, my creator, would handle relationships, that's good for me. If I knowingly or unknowingly don't, it's not good for me. And this is a very uh, sensitive personal realm. I, I mean, I, I'm really struggled with the message this week. I'm very, um, I'm very scared of anything I say being misunderstood or taken to some extreme. And so I want to put that out right, right from the very beginning. It could be that right here this morning, some of us are in a relationship, and we're already wondering, I wonder if this is good for me. I, I wonder if I should do something to extricate myself from this relationship. This is, this is starting to feel pretty painful. This is starting to feel pretty frustrating. This is starting to feel pretty confusing. And I'm really starting to wonder if this is good for me. And it could be that it's in a relationship that you know that your decision about this is going to be pretty dramatic in its impact and its influence. So let's get started before we, you know, start pondering this on our own uh, any further. Let, let, let's look at some things that Jesus says about relationships. And I'm telling you, you're going to find some of this stuff startling. But this is our creator whose design we have telling us how to understand relationships. So if you don't mind turning those Bibles that are on your chair to page 1103, you're going to be looking at Matthew chapter 10. And uh, we're, we're actually going to start in verse 32. And uh, I'll actually flip you to one more passage after this, but go ahead, Matthew 10, 26, or excuse me, verse, chapter 10, verse 32, and it's Jesus talking. Still hear some pages flipping, so I'll wait. All right, it starts. Whoever then acknowledges me before people, I will acknowledge before my Father in heaven. But whoever denies me before people, I will deny him also before my Father in heaven. Do not think that I have come to bring peace on earth. I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. And here's where it gets real personal. For I have come to set a man against his father, and a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a man's enemies will be the members of his household. Here's where it really starts to cut. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not, what does it say? Worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not, what does it say? Worthy of me. And whoever does not take up his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. And whoever finds his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life because of me will find it. Well, let's pause before I take you to one more verse. This sounds, we didn't get far, did we? All right, have we, are we okay now? <laughs> this, this sounds so foreign to us today because, you know, we, we start thinking immediately that these are relationships that you don't put anyone or anything above them, particularly when he says son or daughter. And so Jesus flips this all around, and what he says with crystal clarity is that our relationship, our devotion to him should be superior to any other relationship and, and our devotion to that relationship should be superior to, ours to him than any other relationship we have, even more than to our family members, father, mother, son, 
daughter, and so forth. So this, this is kind of an unusual thing for us to hear today. But when you think about it, Christ created us. He made us for himself. He's with us every second of our life. He knows us from the inside out like no one else does. He sustains us, and ultimately, he will be the one that determines our eternal destiny. He loves us and understands us more than even our father, our mother, our sister, our brother, our family members. So it does make sense. He knows what's best for us and wants what's best for us. It makes sense that he says, your devotion to me has got to be superior. Now, in the context that this was written, you have to understand that many Jews rejected Jesus as the Messiah. And so families actually were, in Jesus' day, were split up when some of the members of that family became followers of Jesus and believed that he was the Messiah. It still happens today. In certain very orthodox Jewish families, if a member becomes a Christian, a follower of Christ, the rest of the family will treat that member of that family like they were dead. So Jesus was saying, you might come to a fork in the road with family members, but your devotion to me has to be superior to above uh, any relationship. Go to Matthew chapter 12, and we'll see one more quick example of this. In chapter 12, look, it's page 1106, look at page, or, or verse 46. It says, while Jesus was still speaking to the crowds, his mother and brothers came and stood outside asking to speak to him. Someone told him, look, your mother and brothers are standing outside wanting to speak to you. To the one who had said this, Jesus replied, who is my mother and who are my brothers? And pointing toward his disciples or his followers, he said, here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of my father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. So here, Jesus elevates spiritual relationships above physical relationships. Jesus was saying that, that you that are my followers, you that are devoted to the will of God, you that have returned to God in trust and because of that want to do his will and actually do his will, he said, you're the ones that are connected to me in a superior way, more so than even his mother and his brothers. So he elevated spiritual relationships above physical blood relationships. Can you receive that this morning? How many of you know the truth? That you have more in common with some fellow followers of Christ than you do with family members, and you always will. How many know that to be a fact? It's just reality. Now, the rest of the New Testament adds one more component to this. In the book of Romans, the apostle Paul writing to followers of Christ living in Rome, he said, so we who are many, meaning many followers of Christ, we who are many are one body in Christ, and individually we are members who belong to who? One another. Okay, my, my body is made up of many members, but my hand, my fingers belong to my body. So here we have again the elevation of relationships, that spiritual relationships, your, your fellow followers of Christ, you are related to them in a one life kind of a unity. It is superior. Don't be offended. Don't make, don't, I don't want you to think this is cultish sounding. It is superior to your relationships with your flesh and blood kin, unless they happen to be also followers of Christ. So that's the first thing we need to kind of get a grip on is, is this, this level of relational priority that Jesus establishes, and it's very different than what we tend to think of it as being. I'll give you an example of how this, this knife can cut across family lines. True story from Washington, D.C. A couple went to talk to their pastor, and they sat down with the pastor, and they said, 
we're very, very concerned about our daughter. She was a young adult. And he said, well, what, what's the concern? Well, we're just afraid she's going to ruin her life. She's throwing her life away. The pastor said, well, well, what is it? What is it that she's doing? He said, well, she came to us and said that she feels like God's calling her to devote her life to be a missionary, to share Christ in parts of the world where it's never been shared before. And we don't want her to do that. We don't want her to ruin her life. Now, listen to that. And if you're a parent, maybe you need to hear just that part. Would you feel that way, that your son or daughter was ruining their life? If they wanted to dedicate their life to serving God, maybe in a dangerous place? But here you can see, this girl was going to face a tough decision to be devoted to her parents' desires or to be devoted to Christ. And Jesus says very clearly, no, we need to listen to his voice beyond that of any other human. To help us get started on this, I want to give you what, what I've kind of just loosely labeled as some relational context. Because relationships are complex, but we have different contexts. And, and loosely we can call some primary and some secondary. Now bear with me on this, and I'm going to try to explain where I'm going. We've seen that our relationship with Christ and our spiritual family, these are primary, primary relationships that we should make maximum effort to develop, to be faithful to, to stay loyal to. The next one, our spouse. It says that when a man and a woman come together in marriage, they become one flesh. That's a primary relationship. Just like we're members of one another spiritually, when a man and a woman marry, they become one flesh, the Scripture says. That's a primary relationship. You say, Randy, what do you mean? Does that mean that you know, you're supposed to be more devoted to your spouse than to your kids? Yes but only after a period of time. Your kids, when they're in their early formative stages, they're a primary relationship. You and I should be utterly devoted to their protection, their development, their direction, and all that kind of thing. But when they become adults, they are no longer, listen to me careful, they're no longer a primary relationship. They are now family. They're always going to be your family, but they should not be on the same level of devotion as you are to your spouse. You're one flesh with your spouse. All right, so you have primary relationships that require maximum effort and devotion, Christ, spiritual family, your spouse. Your physical family, it's a secondary level of relationship. It's still very important, but it's secondary. Your vocational family, you're going to spend about one-third of your life working. Your work associates, your, your bosses and so forth, they are very important. That's a formative context that God puts in our life, but it's still a secondary. Your friends, there's all different levels of friends and friendships. It's, it's very important relationships, but they're secondary relationships. Now, I, I lay this out for you because I want you to start developing an internal grid where you know how much effort and concern certain relationships require, okay? Because it's, it's, it's easy to get this confused sometimes. Now, I want to share something that I shared last week with you to give you like a starting grid, and we're going to look at this a second time in this message. Here's our measure. Here's our grid for discerning how these relationships are affecting us, whether they're good for us or not. Whatever draws me closer to Christ, my creator, and moves me to live in accordance with his word, will, and ways is good for me. Whatever. Now, this doesn't mean that a relationship may not have a lot of trouble and friction in it. Frankly, sometimes the ones that, that have trouble and friction and that bring us to the end of ourselves can actually draw us toward Christ. So, so don't measure a relationship by pain or trouble or, or um, friction. That, that's not what I mean. But whatever ultimately draws me closer to Christ, 
and moves me to live in accordance with his word, his will, and ways. That's good for me. Whatever draws me away from Christ, no matter how pleasant the relationship may be or how easy it may be, whatever draws me away from Christ, my creator, and keeps me from living in accordance with his word, will, and ways is not good for me. This may mean that a relationship, like I said, it might be very easy, very pleasant, but when I really analyze objectively what it's doing to me, it diminishes my fervor for Christ. It doesn't move me towards spiritual growth. It doesn't keep me concerned about molding my life according to God's will as it's revealed in his word. That, that's not good for me, that relationship, even though it might be very easy and very enjoyable. All right, so this kind of gets us started. What we want to do now is just recognize something that's true, the power that relationships have in our life. We are relational beings. We're made in the image of God. We're designed in his image. He's a relational being. We are relational beings. You are very influenced by others, and I am very influenced by others. We influence one another. It's the way that God has made us. Now, you may be thinking, well, Randy, you don't know me. I kind of go my own way and do my own thing. That, that's okay. That's a developmental place to get to ultimately, but you're always, if you're healthy, you're always going to be influenced by others and influencing others. That's God's design. It's meant to be that way. We're always to be influenced and influencing. Of course, it's meant to be in the most positive way. Here's just a few passages that show the power that relationships have over us. The one who walks with, with the wise will become what? So here it is, the, the, the influence that others have. If you hang out with wise people, wise people are always those that have returned to God and trust and they're living according to his word, will, and ways. It's going to rub off on you. It's going to influence you and I. The one who walks with wise people will become wise, but a companion of fools will suffer harm. It's saying if you hang out with people, and a fool in scripture is always one that lives as though God doesn't matter, doesn't exist, and they develop their lifestyle and their values from that. It says you hang out with somebody like that, it's going to, it's going to harm you. It's going to affect you. Again, the righteous guides his friend's way rightly, but the way of the wicked will lead them astray. Influence, the influence of a friend, of a neighbor. If you're living right the way God designed you, you're going to have influence on your friend that's going to move them toward living that way. If you're not, you're going to influence your friend, your neighbor, to live in a way that's contradictory to their nature, their design, and ultimately detrimental to them. So it just shows the power that relationships have. Now, let's take it on a more personal level. In 2 Corinthians chapter 6, the Apostle Paul writing to followers of Christ living in Corinth, he's concerned about some of their associations, and they're concerned, and they've written a letter asking his help. And he says, don't develop partnerships with those who are not followers of Jesus' teaching. Now, before you get too worried about what this, I'll back it up with something else that he said. For what real connection can exist between righteousness and rebellion how can light participate in darkness? Do not develop partnerships with those who are not followers of Jesus' teaching. Now, other versions say, do not be unequally yoked together with unbelievers. But this is what it's talking about. So, so what kind of partnerships is he talking about? Now, Paul wrote them earlier. They, they were a little confused. In this. He says, you know, I'm not talking about those that are not yet followers of Christ. He says, no, 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 by all means, have fellowship with them. Reach out to them. That's God's intention. He says, but if there's somebody that calls themselves a follower of Christ, but they're living immoral or greedy lifestyles, he says, don't, don't have any fellowship with them. It's a really interesting place he draws the line. But what is he talking about, these partnerships? Well, there's two basic 
obvious applications to this. The one is marriage. He's urging people that are not yet married, that are followers of Christ, don't do this to yourself. Don't marry an unbeliever because you're going to have less and less in common the longer that you are together. You might be drawn together initially by physical attraction and emotional attraction and things like that, but the longer you're together, your value system is going to start pulling you apart and it's going to become tormenting to you. What initially drew you together won't matter at all. Everything that will be pulling you apart will matter more. And he's saying, don't hurt yourself like this. Don't get involved in this lifelong partnership with a person that is not yet a follower of Christ. Now, some of you might be thinking, well, well, what about if you're already, you're already married to somebody that's not a follower of Christ? Well, Paul wrote about that too in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 12 through 16. He told Christians in Corinth, he said, listen, if you're married to someone that's not a follower of Christ, but they're okay living with you, staying with you, then stay with them because you don't know, you might eventually influence them and bring them to trust in Christ their creator too. So he says, if they're okay to stay with you, stay with them. First Peter chapter 3, it talks about the same thing there. He talks about if a wife has an unbelieving husband, what should she do? And Peter says, hey, listen, just let the influence of your life affect this man. And you don't know, you might win him without a word by your Christ-like conduct. So it's not saying that, that if you're already in a relationship like that, that that means, you know, that it's doomed and you should get out of it. No. But he's saying if you haven't entered into one, like that, don't hurt yourself. It would also apply to business relationships. You know, you don't want to be a partner with someone that's not a follower of Christ because they're going to have a very different value system than you, and ultimately that could create some problems. So he's just giving some coaching about what's good for us. It's not good for us to enter into these, these binding relationships with those that are not followers of Christ. <coughs> How many of you got one of these? <coughs> this one's kind of hanging on. That was an interesting noise. <laughs> so I want to go back, back to that little chart one more time. Remember, when it comes to these relationships, partnerships, interactions with people on the various levels, we have these different prime relationships, secondary relationships. We have to have a measure. We have to have a grid. Is this drawing me closer to Christ, my creator? Is it moving me to live more in accordance with his word, his will, his ways? Because that's always what my good really is. Or is this maybe causing me to drift from Christ my creator, and keeping me from living in accordance with his word, his will, his ways, that's not good for me. And sometimes it, it's hard to see because it's a matter of time investment. Certain relationships, they, they pull some time, they pull some emotional energy, and we're not quite aware that they're having a, a detrimental effect on us. They're pulling us away from Christ rather than toward him. But this is a good, simple measure that we have for these kind of relationships. All right, we've talked a little bit about the power of relationships now, let's look at trying to optimize the potential that relationships have. Because like I said, you are made, I am made to be influenced. We are meant to influence one another. It's God's intention. We're meant to live in community, but it's meant to be a positive community. We're, we're to be constantly an influence upon one another to do what God says is good for us. Remember what I said. If we knowingly or unknowingly live according to our design, it's good for us. If we knowingly or unknowingly don't live according to our design, it's not good for us. Let me pause for a minute, drift just for a bit. It's unfortunate that somehow through the years, people tend to get this notion that God, just because he's powerful, sort of makes up commands. He just kind of makes up things that he wants us to do because he can. 
But that's not the truth at all. God is an intelligent, relational, understandable being. And when he says things in his word, when he says to us, do this, he knows because we're designed in his image, doing this will be good for us ultimately. How many of you have ever done something in your life that you didn't like it when you were doing it? It was hard. It, it was difficult. You had to really struggle to do it. But when you finally did it and you accomplished whatever it was, you were glad afterward. How many have ever had that experience in your life? Yeah, the very fact that we, are, we can all read. I'm, I'm assuming most of us in here can read. Um, we probably didn't like the process, but we liked the end result. Sometimes what God tells us to do is not initially easy, but he knows it's ultimately good. And then there are things that he tells us, just don't do that. Stay away from that. And we say, but, but that looks really good. It looks really fun. It's kind of like, you know, with kids. You tell kids, eat that spinach. Eat the spinach, but don't eat that chocolate cake, you know. Um, instead of, you know, eating the chocolate cake for dinner, eat the spinach for dinner. And the kid's thinking, are you crazy? The, the cake is delicious, and this stuff tastes like dirt. But you and I supposedly know this is ultimately better for the kid. So God sometimes tells us, don't do some things. We say, but God, I like it. It's fun. Everybody's doing it. Uh, it doesn't seem to be causing any harm. He says, you don't know how you're designed. You don't know what this is ultimately going to do to you. Okay, so sometimes he calls us to do things that we can't initially see are good, but he wants us to influence one another to optimize our life. So God can be trusted when he tells us to do or not to do something. So when it comes to our relationships, Romans 12 gives us something to go by. It says this in verse 18. If possible, notice that. It doesn't say that it's always possible. So this lets all of us off the hook a little bit, and we need it. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all people. How many have trouble living peaceably with all people? Can I see your hands? Yeah, it's really hard, man. That's, I'm, I'm glad it says if possible, you know. But as far as it depends on us, we're supposed to try to do that, all right? Galatians 6 adds this, so then whenever we have an opportunity, let us do good to all people, the good, the bad, the ugly, everybody in between, do good to all people. It's, it's principle-operated living. I'm just going to do good because it's always right to do good to all people, especially to those who belong to the family of faith. That's our fellow followers of Christ. There's that priority of relationships again. Um, your relationship to your fellow followers of Christ gets priority. Now, let me just share with you some relational dynamics or experiences that are always good for us. Uh, here, here's a little list. This is not comprehensive. I could have written a lot more, but it just kind of gives you an idea. You and I relate to some people redemptively, meaning they have not returned to their creator Christ and so we are trying to become a bridge between them and him. We're, we're trying to serve them, love them, bless them, give them samples of what he's like by our relationship with them and hopefully lead them to come to him. Okay, so we, we, re, we relate to some people redemptively, and it's usually a lot of giving in those relationships. We, re, we relate sometimes sacrificially. This, this requires a lot of giving. It's okay. For example, raising kids. In the beginning, it's, it's very sacrificial. You're just giving. You're providing. They don't you know, necessarily give much back, nor do they have to. Whatever they give, we're delighted with it. But, but it's kind of a sacrificial thing. There's other kinds of sacrificial things. But this is good for us. It stretches my soul. It stretches your soul when I'm relating to somebody redemptively or sacrificially, motivationally. Sometimes we need to relate to one another to motivate one another. We're going to see a verse in a minute that emphasizes that. 
You need to motivate me. I need to motivate you. That's healthy when I'm in a relationship that I'm trying to motivate somebody. I'm trying to inspire somebody. You need inspiration. I need inspiration. You have the power to inspire me. I have the power to inspire you. We're meant to do this for one another. It's healthy when you're in a relationship where you're trying to inspire and motivate somebody. Some relationships are supportive. We're really holding somebody or something together. And that's okay. That's healthy for us. That, that builds that kind of love in us like God has. He's supportive. He's redemptive. He's sacrificial. He's motivational. He's inspirational. Sometimes we're in relationships where we have to play a corrective role. That's very hard. We always feel awkward about that because we know we're not perfect, but we see some things. We don't want to see somebody learn everything the hard way. So sometimes if we really love, we've got to take a corrective role. That's the way God is too. That's good for us. It's always good for us. And then sometimes a formative role. You know, we, we have to be models. We have to be examples. We have to help people develop. We have to give them a vision of, of who God created them to be and what they are enabled to do because of him. So when you're in a relationship and these kinds of things are happening, they're, they're good for us. Even though the relationship may have some friction, may be frustrating, might not be, you know, the person may not be responding in the way that we would like to see. Nevertheless, they, they have a good effect. They stretch our soul. One of the things that God's always trying to teach us throughout this life is, is to learn how to love the way he loves, unselfishly devoted to the highest good of another person without needing anything in response. If you get something in response, it's always great, but God's always trying to stretch us to love unselfishly, and relationships are beautiful for that. Because whenever you're in a relationship with another person, you have to think about more than just yourself, right? They stretch us. They bring out the best in us. All right. Let me give you an example of how uh, just looking for opportunities to do good can blossom into something very powerful. There's a guy named Terry Muck, and he writes in, uh, in Men of Integrity uh, magazine, an article back in 2009, a story about two neighbors uh, one was a Christ follower, and one neighbor was not. And so, you know, they were just typical neighbors. You know, they'd talk over the fence, and, you know, if a lawnmower went down or something like that, they'd, they'd share a tool or something like that. But then suddenly, the neighbor who was the non-follower of Christ, his wife came down with cancer, and within a very short period of time, three months, she died. And so I want to read you an actual letter from the non-Christ-following neighbor uh, that speaks about this episode in his life. Here it is. He says in his letter, I was in total despair. I went through the funeral preparations and the service like I was in a trance. After the service, I went to the path along the river and I walked all night. But I didn't walk alone. My neighbor, afraid for me, I guess, stayed with me all night. He didn't speak. He didn't even walk beside me. He just followed me. When the sun finally came up over the river, he came over and he said, let's go get some breakfast. It goes on. I go to church now, my neighbor's church. A religion that can produce the kind of caring love my neighbor showed me is something I want to find out more about. I want to love and be loved like that for the rest of my life. What a powerful thing when we're always looking for opportunities to do good in our relationships. What a dramatic change it can bring to somebody's life. By the way, I just want to ask you a personal question. If you knew for a fact 
be, be serious with me now on this one. If you knew for a fact that 8 out of 10 people, if you went to 8 out of 10 people and you said this to them, you said, hey, I'd like you to come visit my church, and, and I want you to sit with me. Uh, come, come on, come on, visit me, visit my church. If you knew that 8 out of 10 people you went to and you said that, you invited them to church, but you offered to sit with them. That's key. You offered to sit with them in church. 8 out of 10 people, how many of you would invite somebody? If you knew 8 out of 10 would come, let me see your hands. Well, it's true. It's been studied, and it's statistically true. If you or I invite somebody to church and offer to sit with them in church, 8 out of 10 people will. And I hope some of you, if not most of you know, that can be the most life-changing thing that can happen to a person. You invite a person to the right church where the Spirit of God is having freedom to communicate His truth to people about Himself and about life, and it can be the most beneficial, life-changing thing that can ever happen. Do you know what percentage of actual Christ followers do invite people? Would you like to know that percentage? 21%. Only 21% actually do invite anyone. This is just meant to give you something to think about. Something as simple, as simple as an invite and an offer to accompany a person can dramatically, dramatically bring God's goodness into their life. Just like that neighbor saw an opportunity, and because he was on alert relationally, uh, he was able to, to leverage that for so much good. Here's a verse that I mentioned to you, how we're supposed to be intentionally influencing each other. It's in the book of Hebrews in the New Testament. It says, let us consider how to inspire each other to greater love and righteous deeds. Let, let that sit on the screen just for a moment. Notice it, it, it says, I've got to think about you. You've got to think about me. I need to think about more than just my own problems and needs and troubles. I've got to think about the other fellow followers of Christ. How can I inspire them toward greater love and toward righteous deeds? And, and we are meant, it's God's intention for us to influence each other and to keep each other revved up in the right ways like this. Sometimes I'm the one that needs to be motivated. Sometimes you're the one that needs to be motivated. Sometimes I'm the one that needs to be encouraged. Sometimes you're the one that needs to be encouraged. Sometimes I'm the one that needs to be admonished and corrected. Sometimes you're the one that needs to be admonished and corrected. All, all these are relational norms that God intends to happen lovingly amongst his people. Okay, so the, this is the kind of relationship that God intends for us. Now, I'm sure some of you are thinking, Randy, you're really dancing around this thing and you're not answering the question. What about these really, these really hurtful, painful relationships? You know, I've got this family member that they are just toxic. I mean, whenever they talk to me, it's, it's just hurtful and it's demeaning and it, it ravishes my self-esteem and it, it just tears me down. Well, what do you do with that person like that? Or I've got somebody in my life, I've got this boss that's always intimidating and threatening and disrespectful, and, and, and I'm just like a bundle of nerves. What, what do I do with this stuff? I mean, am I supposed to endure this? I, I've, I've got this spouse that, that I think is, is abusive, if not physically, at least verbally, and it's, it's tearing my soul out. It's, it's, it's slowly but surely causing me to lose my very identity. I'm, I'm listless. I'm numb. I'm just moving through life like a ghost. I mean, am I supposed to endure that? Am I supposed to... To continue in that? Is that good for me, Randy? I want to be careful now in what I say, but let me share a verse with you to give you some, something to think about. This is from 1 Peter. Peter, writing to followers of Christ, he says, 
you servants, and the word there is doulos in the original Greek. It, it meant slaves because during the time that he was writing in the Roman Empire, uh, as many as two-thirds of the population, some estimate, were slaves. When Rome conquered a country, you might be a doctor, you might be an architect, but you now became a slave. And so slavery, servanthood, was quite common in the Roman Empire, which is the context when this is writing. Today we might apply it to being an employee, okay, for example. So you servants or employees must submit yourselves to your masters or bosses and show them complete, what is the word? Respect. But suppose they don't deserve respect. Suppose they're a jerk. Well, he seems to have that in mind. He says, not only to those who are kind and considerate, but also to those who are what? Harsh or jerks. <laughs> My paraphrase. Yours too. You probably use badder words than that. Badder. <laughs> Worse. <laughs> For this finds God's what? Favor if... Because of conscience toward God, someone endures hardships in suffering. What kind of suffering? Unjustly. Let's apply this relationally. It's saying to certain Christians, in this case, who could not change their circumstance. It's saying, you know what? Don't let this person invade your soul, but... Respect them, even though they deserve it not. Do what is right. You're, you're to do good to all. But know that your suffering doesn't go unnoticed. Notice that your abuse is not going unnoticed. God sees, and you're suffering this way and still being respectful, still doing good, and it finds favor with him if you can do this or if you must do this. And I think sometimes we have to apply this in other relationships. You say, Randy, but you're making it sound like, man, you should just enable abusers and enable bad people, and you shouldn't stick up for yourself. No, 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 I'm not, I'm not saying that at all. But I'm urging you to consider something. Listen, in the book of 1 John chapter 2, it talks about Christians, followers of Christ, being at three different developmental levels. It says that some are just, just children, just babes, just newcomers in our mental, emotional, spiritual development. And a child, we know, can't do the things that a young adult can do. And then John says, some of you are young adults in Christ. You're, you've grown stronger. You're more mature. And then he says, and some of you are mature. You're fathers in Christ or mothers in Christ. So Scripture recognizes three levels of development in a Christian's life. How many of you can identify with this? That, that there are things that in your early beginning stages of following Christ, you could not even be around. I'll give you an example like me. You know, I came out of the whole rock drug culture. And so in my early stages of following Christ, I could not even listen or hear any of the old music that I used to listen to so much because it, it brought back too many memories and it created temptation in me. I couldn't get around people that were drinking or, or you know, doing drugs and stuff like that because it was too close to my past life. But then I developed some as a follower of Christ. And frankly, I, I could get around somebody doing next to anything now and it doesn't have any pull on me. It has no effect. So I changed and my ability to endure things without it affecting me changed. So... Here's the thing I'm trying to say. It's possible you might be at such a stage of spiritual maturity that you are in one of these unjust suffering relationships, but you are convinced, now listen to me carefully, 
You are convinced, and only you and God can work this out. You are convinced, this is part of your God-given mission, that you are there to try to redemptively continue to love and serve this person. I'm not talking about codependency. I'm not talking about enabling. I'm talking about you and God have come to the conclusion you're, you're there and you're okay. Yeah, it hurts, but you're okay. You're intact. You're still walking with God. It's not diminishing your fervor for him or his kingdom. And you're okay, okay? Then sometimes he wants us to endure hardship, though it's unjust, to sustain a relationship, particularly those primary relationships. Remember how I started the message. I said there's primary relationships and secondary relationships. Now, having said that, it scares me to death to think that some of you are in very dangerous situations that are not good for you physically, mentally, emotionally, or spiritually because of whatever level of development you're on. And I can't answer sufficiently for you in a message like this. And so what I'm going to try to do at the conclusion of this message is, is point you to some resources and, and give you some things to think about. Let me close, let me shut this thing down with a, a story that comes from a life of a lady named Ann Snyder. She was a young Christian journalistic student and then went into journalism, very anxious to, you know, make an impact for Christ in the world of journalism, which today, <laughs> lots of luck on that one. But anyway, she went to work for this guy named David Brooks. Uh, she got a job then, which she thought was amazing. He was a very established, nationally known New York Times columnist uh, who was also not, unsurprisingly, not a follower of Christ. And so she went. She was able to maintain her Christian integrity. She was not being influenced by him. Remember, Jesus said some peculiar things to his early followers in the Sermon on the Mount. He said, hey, you guys should be like salt and you should be like light, meaning we, when we're at our best, are meant to influence others that are apart from Christ and not be influenced by them. You put salt in something, the salt changes the flavor of what it is. You turn a light on in a dark room, it doesn't matter how dark the room is, the light still shines, you can still see. The darkness can't overcome the light. So we're meant to be influencers, powerful influencers, but again, we have to be realistic about our, our development stages. Our influence grows as we mature and become strong in Christ. We shouldn't bite off more than we can chew. But anyway, Ann Snyder was pretty strong. And so she went into this job, and she related to him. And he finally came to a place where, in 2015, he wrote a book. Surprisingly, uh, the book was called The Road to Character. And let me just let you read what he said in the, uh, the beginning of this book. In the beginning of Book's acknowledgement page, he offered this glowing honor to his new research assistant, Ann Snyder. Ann C. Snyder was there when this book was born and walked me through the first three years of its writing. This was first conceived as a book about cognition and decision-making under Ann's influence, this young Christian you know, girl. It became a book about morality and inner life. It goes on. She led dozens of discussions about the material, assigned me reading from her own bank of knowledge, challenged the superficiality of my thinking in memo after memo, and transformed the project. I have certainly stolen many of her ideas and admired the gracious and morally rigorous way she lives her life. Listen to that. The way she lives her life, not the stuff that we say. It's got to be backed by the way we live her life. 
I've certainly stolen many of her ideas and admired the gracious and morally rigorous way she lives her life. If there are any important points in this book, they probably came from Anne. So this gives an example of how we can be a Christ follower in a tough relationship, a potentially dangerous relationship. This was a strong, you know, uh, unbeliever who was, in this case, her boss, but she exerted the right kind of influence. Now, the man, to my knowledge, is not yet a Christ follower, but it wouldn't be surprising if that's how it ends. What she did establish is she caused this man to see the reasonableness and the beauty of the life that Christ calls his people to live. And it's obviously, it was obviously compelling. So here's what I want you to do as I close this message down. I have a slide. And I'd like you to actually jot some of this down, okay? So you have pens, uh, great old FCF pens, and even though we turn the light down on you, uh, hopefully you can write. But I would like you to write down, first of all, at the bottom, I'd like you to write the word boundaries and safe people. Actually, I'd like you to write safe people first and then boundaries. Safe people and boundaries. And what these are are two books, and I am begging you, if you are still in relationships that you're, you're wanting to do better at and figure out and wonder what's good for you, what's not, please read these two books. Read Safe People and read Boundaries. All right? Please do this. This is the closing part of this message. Every one of us in here, if we do that, we will benefit. The next part, there's a link up there, and we're going to have this on Facebook so you can access it easily. But it's a link that gives a very clear um, thorough description of, of what abusive relationships look like, uh, what are the patterns in them, so that you can know objectively if you are in one. Now, if you're in an abusive relationship, obviously you have to take some measures to do some things to try to change it for your, your own survival, uh, mentally, emotionally, and physically in some cases. But it doesn't necessarily mean, doesn't necessarily mean the end of the relationship, albeit it, it might. It, it, it at least means you must create some healthy boundaries to protect yourself and also give the other person the best chance of correcting their self-destructive behavior. So please, please, I can't get into all the details that I like doing this, but, but relationships are, are so complicated. And, and, and let me, here's my third plea with you. If you're in a relationship and you're, you're confused, please, Talk to someone. Now, listen, be careful. Don't, don't talk to that friend of yours that's going to agree with everything, you know, you want to hear. <laughs> talk to someone that is a spiritually wise, mature, experienced counseling sort. And lay this out before them. Somebody that's going to give you objective, trustworthy counsel and advice based on a thorough knowledge of God's word and a thorough knowledge of life. And help, let them help you discern, figure this thing out. Because when we're caught in the midst of these things sometimes, uh, the pain and the confusion they bring can be so overwhelming that we can't get a good, clear picture of what we're dealing with. So that, that's, that's what I'm asking you to do to close this message. Two books to read. It'll do your soul good. In fact, I hope it, those two books go on the FCF book list, Safe People and Boundaries. They're by Henry Cloud and John Townsend. All right, let's pray. <laughs> Father, uh, we thank you that we're created in your image, relational beings with the capacity to love, the ability to influence and be influenced, to give and to receive love, 
And we pray that you'll give us great wisdom and strength to discern how to handle these complex, multifaceted relationships that you've put into our life for our growth and development to bless us and to bring blessing to others as well. Help us to take action. We ask it all in Christ's name. Amen.